Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. This is Soundside. I'm Libby Dankman. Okay, Anna, tell me about Keeley and what he's trying to do. So Keeley is this exuberant yellow lab. He's a trained cadaver dog, which means that he's gone through hours and hours of training to sniff special compounds that happen when a body decomposes. Anna King is the Richland correspondent for the Northwest News Network. She recently reported on efforts to find indigenous remains on the Yakima Indian Reservation in central Washington. He has this bell around his neck as he winds his way through this palomino-colored grass and all this brush. And when he finds something, he just lays down and barks. And he might be there all around Fort Simcoe and sniffing the ground and trying to discern where old bones might be buried, even hundreds of years old, under the ground. And they can only do it, Libby, in the morning when the dew is on the grass and there's more aromas evaporating off the ground. And when it gets later in the day, the dogs get tired from the heat or from more sun. And they also just can't sniff as well. So Keeley is part of a larger team, including Suzanne Elschult, Guy Mansfield, and John Schellenberger. What are they looking for? So they're at this place that the Yakima Nation calls Mool Mool, and those outside the tribe know it as Fort Simcoe State Park or Fort Simcoe Historical State Park. The site has this long history. Originally, it was this beautiful spring site and a crossroads between different trails that Native Americans crossed. So if they were going from the mountains to the Columbia River down towards Dallesport, they would use these trails. Or if they were going from the valley to the mountains, they would use these trails. And as the military found out about this place of strength that had clean, fresh water, a crossroads between different places, they decided to take it over and establish it as a military fort. And they used it against the Yakima Nation and bands in all of these conflicts that they had, the wars. Eventually, that fort closed and it was turned over to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. A boarding school was built and and operated for many years. Native children were forced to attend as part of a forced assimilation program there. So it's believed that the remains at this site could be from that village. It could be from the casualties of the Yakima War in the 1850s. And also, it could be from these tiny children that were forced to attend the boarding school there. So this site has a long and painful history for the Yakima Nation. Why are they searching this now? What is prompting this? So they have been searching this area for a while. And when Suzanne Eschel, the dog's handler, saw an article in the Yakima Herald Republic about Fort Simcoe and Mool Mool, 
she got really interested and she thought, this is a job for my dog. I could be a help here. And so he's doing some vocalization around here. Um, So he may be in faint odor. I may be marking this as an area of interest. Come back to it later, tomorrow, when the conditions are different. And so she contacted the Yakima Nation and the people working on it, John Schellenberger and Emily Washines. She got in contact with them and asked permission from the tribes and the nation to work on this site with them in collaboration and bring very highly skilled search and rescue professionals along with her that have sophisticated mapping tools and other other ways to search for these remains. And they got started right away after all the permitting and the permissions were all done. And as you mentioned, it's not just Keeley that Suzanne and her team are employing to search the site. What other kinds of technology is involved here? And what does that search look like? It's like a really tough site to search. It's hilly and has valleys, low spots, and it's 200 acres of land that they're trying to search through. And so what they did is they have one search and rescue professional, Guy Mansfield. The general focus of search planning is you're always going to have a limited number of resources. And this is true whether you're searching for unmarked burials or lost people in the wilderness. You're never going to have enough resources. He uses historical accounts maps, oral histories, and all of this data to determine what areas have a higher probability of finding something. So an example of the factors could be proximity to the old boarding school dormitories, an area where there's soil where it's easy to dig, okay? Because you may have seen some of the soil around here is very hard. And then once they do that, then they send the dogs into those specific squares of areas. They break it all down into a grid, and the dogs search the highest probability squares uh, of land. And then if the dogs repeatedly mark an area as of interest, if they continually say, hey, something's over here, then they use this machine called the ground-penetrating radar, which basically Libby looks like a baby jogger, but it has this sophisticated machinery on it. And they skim it over the land and it puts down a signal, kind of like a fish finder. And it has a screen on it. And then in the screen, they can see all of the information that's under the ground. And they, if there were remains or if there was a depression in the earth or other things, they're able to find it there. Here's John Schellenberger. He's an archaeologist. Because it's an electrical pulse, it's going to pick up highly conductive material, water and metal. Some of the less conductive materials would be wood and like pipes, like uh, PVC and rocks. So like modern caskets made of metal just show up like really well. But prehistoric burials that have no caskets... Um, they have no rock lining or anything don't reflect as well. So a lot of times water will accumulate at the top of a burial or maybe at the bottom, depending. And that water is what reflects up. So you're not necessarily seeing the bones, you're seeing the context around that. 
Anna, is it guesswork at this point that there will be remains found at the site? Or do they have a good sense that, yes, there is something to find there? There's a high probability that there will be remains found at this site. How many of these burials might be there or where they're placed, hard to know. But they're trying to use historical data, maps, architectural renderings and drawings to inform where they're searching. And it's just terribly serious, Libby. It's it's very heavy work. It was very emotional to be on site with these crews and with the Native American people who are leading this study. There was just a lot of bubbling up about all the history and the atrocities that have happened here. Yeah, there is this really excruciating reckoning going on at the forced assimilation processes and the family separations that occurred because of these native boarding schools. And, of course, remains of hundreds of indigenous children have been found at sites of these boarding schools in North America and Canada and the United States. How has that work across North America affected the search at Fort Simcoe or Mumul? One of my sources, Emily Washeen, she's a historian, a Yakima Nation tribal member, and John Schellenberger's wife, says that indigenous people in Canada have used dogs and ground-penetrating radar and other tools to help them uncover graves and atrocities that were imposed by boarding schools. And so it's provided this sort of roadmap for this grim work that they're doing here near Yakima. Here's Emily. There are memories here that I have that are happy memories with family, playing softball or having different uh, celebrations and with food and laughter and family. But we always are aware of kind of the history that's in this area. We are from generations of boarding school, and even my father was abused in public school in, within Washington State for speaking his language in, in the 50s. And so that definitely continues to impact this generation. The things that were done in the late 1800s and the decades of forced assimilation and violent assimilation continues to impact this generation. And what did Emily Washeen say about the importance of finding remains in the context of Yakima culture? She told me that in Yakima culture, the unmarked graves are a pretty serious thing. They don't go to grave sites Libby at night or for fun, like to be spooked out at Halloween. They don't go near graves during the latter part of the day. They would never eat a picnic in a graveyard like some Western cultures do to honor their dead. And so they're worried that possibly some of these graves might be unwittingly desecrated by people just because nobody knows that they're there. So it's really against our culture and our history to have unmarked graves, to have somebody in an unmarked area. We're very specific with power to be handled traditionally. And so it's important for us to find them and handle them in a way that's in accordance to our traditional laws. And so to have an unmarked burial is a violation of our traditional laws. And it's something that we work to fix. So this is really an exercise to protect those people 
to know that they're there, to honor them, even if they're not moved and they're honored in place. They just want to know that they have found them and that they are there and they've done the best job that they can. And if the remains are found, these Yakima Nation remains, what will happen with them? So that's up to the tribal council and the government of the Yakima Nation. And ultimately, we may never know if there are remains found. That's up to the nation to really decide whether they want to share that in a broader way or if they want to keep that close within their own bounds. I think that it's an interesting thing in Western society If you find something, then we tell everybody or somebody claims it or it's owned or something like that. And that's not possibly what will happen here. I think that it is really interesting that it was so fresh. It was so emotional to just stand there with Emily and with John and realize the history that is personal to them, that they're... In one case, John Schellenberger's great-great-great-grandfather was a very high official. He was an agent with the federal government at Fort Simcoe, and he was white, and his maternal side was Native American. And so just that story alone shows you how complicated this is. Here's John. I just feel like this is kind of... A home, even though it's marked by tragedy. Um, it, how can you feel like a stranger in your own home, even though a fort was built on top of it, and even though a boarding school was built on top of it? I believe in our ancestors and the fact that they wanted the best for us, and you know they prayed for us without even knowing who we were. So we're here because of their prayers. And we're doing this work because of their strength and their tenacity to survive this horrible 60 years or more of boarding schools. Oh, and now he is searching to find answers about the site and hopefully to bring some respect and peace to any remains that may be found there. You spent two days with John and the whole team as they searched the Fort Simcoe and Mulmul site Did they find anything? They found this really interesting depression in the earth that had been filled in with soil. And it was evidently man-made from what John was saying. And he was really excited to find it. And it just looked like this white line on the screen, like a grainy white line. It almost reminded me of like an ultrasound picture. And he was looking at it so intently and he was so excited. And he said, this could be a depression that was an archaeological trench dug many years ago by early archaeological teams. It could have been a food pit used to store food, or it could have been even a latrine, but most likely something other than a latrine given its location. There's at least three different contexts here um, lying on top of one another that are probably going to show up. So you have the archaeological context going back 
thousands of years and you all the way up to the fort when you have even more archaeology from the fort and then 60 years of use of the boarding school so it's really hard to split hairs and say okay well this is for that or this is for that how long is this process expected to take anna the group thinks that this particular study will happen through the spring and that they'll conclude their active field work after the dogs come back in the spring. Uh, but the overarching work on this site might span well past their lifetimes. And there's something that's very, that can really hit at your heart hearing that because I sometimes lack patience. <laughs> But to come to the realization and acceptance that this work will continue probably beyond my lifetime is is a point that I had to get to. And on a, upon a lot of reflection and prayer. And what really helped me in that moment is I thought, I think that we, myself, and others that work on this are exactly who our ancestors prayed for. To one day help solve and bring to light some of the atrocities and horrible things that happened. Anna King covers Washington and Oregon, mainly east of the mountains for the Northwest News Network. She produced this story in partnership with the Yakima Herald Republic. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for having me. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.